Hey, John. Hi, Dan. It's a little different because usually I call you on Skype, and now we're re- recording a different way, so I don't get the normal ringing sound and all the stuff that I'm used to. We're recording a different way, and I'm very excited by it. Yeah, me too. You know, I love new technology, and I believe uh, you know we probably shouldn't mention the uh, the tool because we want them to. <laughs> Buy an ad on the show. Yeah, right. Maybe we should mention the tool and then send it to them and say, look, we're already doing ads for you. Yeah, it's it's clean feed. They probably don't have any money. No, cleanfeed.net. Yeah, it's clean feed, and I'm really excited because I want our feed to be clean. <laughs> I'm going to take clean feed. I'm going to use it everywhere. Adam Curry introduced me to, to clean feed. That's what they've been using for a while over at, uh, all, I think, all the stuff that he does. He uses it. And what's really nice is I just send you a, I send you a link, Beep. you you get the link, you click Boop. it, and then we're just recording. You don't need software, you don't need anything, you don't need Skype. And then I get I, your locally recorded audio file without you having to later upload it. It's so hot. It's much better. You buried the lead there. You you're in you're in regular contact with Adam Curry. Yeah, I mean he's a uh, I mean. You know, like he's the he's the one that invented podcasting, right? Yeah, I mean, would you uh-huh. say? I would say we're friends. I mean, friends to me wow. implies that you hang out a lot and like come over. You have pizza together, beers. Right. We don't right. do it that often, but I would consider him a, a friend and more than an acquaintance. We, you know, I could text him and he would text me right back. Kind of, thing. that's a friendship in 2022. During for COVID, sure, it I think is. it is for sure. It is half my friendships used to be that. Do you, it, he doesn't live in Texas, does he? Yeah, he lives here in Austin. He's my neighbor. Oh, well, what do you know? You know, I mean, he he hosted Headbangers Ball for a while. Yeah. He's not, you know, he's like not kidding around. Adam no. Curry, he was in uh, He was in that David Bowie video. Yeah, he's big. He's a big deal. He's, he's a, a and he's a great deal. guy. Really nice. He's so, so, so tall. Like yeah, you, he's tall. He's, he's probably taller than you, isn't he? Well, I don't know, but he's tall. He's tall. Adam I remember him Curry being. I remember him height. being tall, even even uh, back in the old days. Well, I he just says love he's that. six foot five inches. Oh, which he's is taller than me. One point nine six meters. Yeah, for those of, of the, our listeners not in the correct country. I uh, I'm very impressed uh, by that. By the fact that you're friends with Adam Curry. You know, I was thinking about it. Um, you know, I do a lot of name. We watched. By the way, we we watched the Hillary. Uh, and Donald Trump, um, uh, the debates he. together. He yeah, and. yeah, I lo- I I love that. The uh, the the uh, as I was saying that the uh, I do I do uh, over the years I've done quite a bit of name dropping and and I always feel like it's um, you know it's not it's not gross when I do it uh, because <laughs> you know because I don't do it uh, I don't do it wantonly. Mm-mm. Right, like these are these because of some quirk of modern celebrity. Uh, I have been lucky enough to to wander the world and uh, and ha- meet all these interesting people, and not just meet them, but have uh, have extended relationships with them. Where you would think that people of a certain level of celebrity only hang out with themselves, other celebs. At their level and higher, mm-hmm. or maybe, or maybe lower. I don't know which. There's, there always seems to be a ceiling. Oh, Adam's definitely slumming when he hangs out with me. That, that's very. Well, but that's the thing. There's no, there is no ceiling. You just end up, you end up where you end up. I'm sure if I was at Studio 54 and Bobby De Niro sat next to me, we'd have plenty to talk about. <laughs> so yeah, it's just weird. It's it, it it has less to do with who you are and more to do with like. Did you did you did you finagle an invitation to the thing where you end up sitting next to somebody? But you never name drop, and uh, and you just and the and the fact that you and Adam Curry like bang around, I just think that's wonderful. Well, he's a great guy. Yeah, take take pity great. on me and hang out with me. Appreciate he's, it. He sounds <laughs> great. You know, most of my celebrity friends are gone from my from my uh, life now. So it's just back to my normal friends, and I have to say, Dan, it's been really nice connecting with my actual normal 
regular friends. I spent the last decade or more, probably 15 years, spending a lot more energy emotionally and just physical energy with people that I knew from entertainment that involved me flying around and, and, um, and also relationships like you're describing where you're, where you do a lot of texting, you do a lot of retweeting, you know, uh, these relationships that were not based around the fact that we used to, that we met in, in some cafe and used to sit around that cafe and talk about comic books. Mm-hmm. And now that I've, you know, I, I, um, I was forced this last year, not, well, I mean, forced, it felt like at first, um, especially during the pandemic, to say, like, if I were going to include somebody in my bubble, who would they be? If I were going to reach out to somebody I hadn't talked to in a long time, who would they be? Right. And I got a couple of, you know, there were a couple of times where I was like, I need human beings in my life. I can't just... uh I can't just now be without humans. And I reached out to some friends I'd known for 30 years. And they were all so welcoming as though no time had passed. And I was able to reconnect with people and start going for long walks with friends. And and as the COVID went in and out, you know, there were all those times where it seemed like maybe this is it. It's, yeah. it's over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we would meet for food. And then a week later, it's like, oh, no, you know, we can't do that anymore. But but it's been really good to, uh, to be reminded that, like, oh, I have a full complement of people in my life, old friends, good friends. And uh, it's been part of my, like, reestablishment of myself as an as an actual human and not just somebody that's a figurehead yeah that or like trying to get in on somebody else's invitation to a party where ted danson is (laughs) and you know i wasn't a i wasn't like a like a a whore no you know, I was always just doing what I was doing. And like, of course, if I could get into a party with Ted Danson, of course I'm going to do it. I, it's not like I was standing outside, up try, you know, trying to get past the velvet rope. But it did feel like a career and it felt mm. like a life, right? Because it's just like, well, if I'm here, I've got to, this has got to be a career. This, this has to be like a thing that you do. And it was in a weird way. Yeah. But God, it's been fun to, you know, it's fun to sit around with people you've known forever that that have been there all along. And I mean, it's not like I never saw these people, but but now I feel much more like, oh, these, this is my actual world. Now, it sounds like Adam Curry is in your actual world. Yeah, I mean, there we he and I have reason to talk about podcasting and things like that. And yeah, you both invented podcasting. Well, I mean, I feel like he did that, <laughs> but I mean, we definitely have stuff to talk about, you know. And yeah. I, I imagine it would be the same as if you were to talk with a fellow musician, performer type person. Yeah. You know, if I could imagine you and Lenny Kravitz hanging out. Lenny and I would have to get... You both sing. To, well, hang on. You both write songs. You both sing. You both play guitar. And you both are a front man. Yeah. I see no other difference between you. It's otherwise, <laughs> the same. We'd have to talk. You know, I was a big fan of his first couple records. I felt like somewhere along the way, it's more style than substance, maybe. I, You know, a few wardrobe malfunctions. I mean... <laughs> We would have to have we'd have to have something else to talk about Uh besides our showbiz careers because like he owns the he owns the recording desk from Apple, or from from uh, you know from the Beatles that Apple yeah he he owns he owns the the Abbey Road desk or one of them you know like he's 
it would be hard for me to just like walk around his house and not want to touch everything, you know? And I'm guessing that, I'm guessing that you and Adam Curry, like when you're at Adam Curry's house, you're not like, whoa, is that the original microphone from, you know, probably not. He's probably not, (laughs) he's probably not sitting on top of a pile of guitars, each one worth more than my house. But I, I get what you mean. I it's see the same what you're saying. It's, and, yeah, it's the same thing. And you're almost in, indistinguishable from Lenny Kravitz, as it as it were. Yeah. To the I naked think, eye. I think if you put the two of us together next to each other. I'd be talking to one, you'd be like, I'm I'm Lenny. I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'd just I, turn and talk to you. you know? I think you'd be able to tell us apart just because he would have on really big sunglasses. Yes, and you would have a beard and he probably wouldn't. Yeah. And I can't do the splits. You know, there are a lot of differences. <laughs> right. I used to. I used to do the splits. Uh, it's uh, oh, just I, the, you know, I was. I was watching. Um, I was watching Jump, the video for Jump. Yeah. Where your boy uh, David Lee Roth does the the splits and also oh. the giant l- kicking l- leap where the his leg is like pointed right at the moon. Yeah, I think he can barely walk now <laughs> because of that. Well, yeah, you know, that's what killed Prince. He got on those painkillers. Yes. Because all those years, and Prince weighs a buck oh five, yeah, probably. Yeah, he, he was tiny. And, uh, and, but all that stuff, all those high heeled boots and all that jumping around, like his knees and his hips, it was all shot. And, uh, and he kept doing it. Like he couldn't, he couldn't stop doing it. It's the Prince show. And, uh, so he got on painkillers because he just hurt so badly. And then, of course, you know, there's no there's no way to get on painkillers and stay on them and not be a junkie in the end. Yeah, and I mean, there were the things that had come out before he actually overdosed. Um, was that you know, like he had been at least once, like is it called Narcan? The thing yeah, that, Narcan that that, yeah. that neutralizes suddenly all, some kind of jump starts your heart. Yeah, you know, like oh, <laughs> like I've a, seen it. I've oh, seen it in action. How, how does it work? What happens? Oh, it's heavy duty. Heavy, heavy, heavy duty. Like, so to see set this up. Back. A, a person is dying from overdose and then they stab them. Do they have to stab them in the heart with this thing or it just. No, I didn't. They, they, they didn't like slam a huge needle into yeah. this guy's heart. I don't think it was a long time ago. I'm, I, I'm sure I've told the story, but a friend of mine and I. Actually, a friend that I've recently reconnected with and spent some in-person time with. It's Scott. It's We Can All Agree on Cheese Scott, who I he and I have known each other since 1991. We have always had a relationship where we mercilessly uh, teased each other, although Scott is much more deadpan than I am. But Scott and I, this is probably 1996, maybe. Scott and I are, are uh, we were at something. We were getting dropped off in the back parking lot of the old New City Theater, mm-hmm. and uh, which then became the Hugo House. Mm. But we're in the back parking lot of the New City Theater, and the thing was, my band's practice space was in one of two garages behind the New City Theater. The New City Theater was John Kazanjan's theater, and he bought it. It used to be a funeral home, a giant funeral home. And he bought it right across the street from Cal Anderson Park at a time when you could buy an old funeral home in the center of Capitol Hill for like $40,000. Giant, you know. And... uh. And before it was a funeral home, maybe it had been a mansion or maybe it was one of those funeral homes that was built to look like a mansion. Mm -hmm. But it had a huge theater that had been the place where they would do funerals. It had all these rooms and down in the basement, there was a whole embalming place, creepy basement, uh, an elevator that could hold a coffin Anyway, behind the behind the New City Theater were two standalone garages, both big enough for hearses. And those garages had just been used for storage. And then Peter Cars, who was the first bass player in the Long Winters, 
in the mid-90s, Peter Kars, who had been working at the New City Theater as an actor, member of the company, he said, can I turn one of those garages into a practice space? Mm. And John Kazanjan, who was a supporter of the arts in every way, and this was, again, at a time when on Capitol Hill, you get a studio apartment for $300, and... There was no premium on space, right? There were still abandoned warehouses everywhere. Real estate was not a factor. Kazanjan mm-hmm. was like, yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to fix it up, you can. And, uh, you know, and whatever. I'll charge you a little bit of rent. And so Peter and I helped, uh, helped him a lot. He cut a door in the side. He took the garage door off its hinges and put it back as a wall. He put electricity in it. He kind of insulated it, turned it into a practice space and then started living there because Peter was mud duck, dirty, dirty bird. He was like, well, why would I live? Why would I get an apartment? I can live in this uninsulated garage in the back of the theater in the old funeral home. And I can go in and use the bathroom in the, in the theater. Well, because I'd helped him, I was using it as my band practice space too. Mm -hmm. But then he started living there, sleeping on the futon. And then it got all, he got all testy because I would come in with my band. Cause it was like, we finally had our own practice space. And as long as Peter's band wasn't practicing, it felt like we should be able to practice. Well, now all of a sudden he's sleeping there. And it's like, fuck, Peter. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, this is my place. I fixed it up. It's my, I was like, we're paying rent on it too. So then we started paying all the rent on it. And then he was still testy. And he's a testy little, little brat. (laughs) So eventually I was like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to share this with Peter or have anything to do with Peter. Now, I kept making the mistake over the course of the next 15 years that I kept having things to do with Peter, including hiring him to work on my mom's house. I asked him to be in the long winters. And then eventually, the the final straw was I asked him to help me work on my new house just now, two years ago. Yeah, okay. I remember that you tell me about this. And he screwed me over every time. And then every wi- time. the Wikipedia guy... Uh, should tell us what episode that I want to give him an assignment. I feel like every episode we need to give him an assignment. I don't think he likes that. I think that he is a German. Yeah. B living in Scandinavia, which only emphasizes your Germanness. I don't think he wants any instructions. I think you're, I think you might be wrong. Um, (laughs) he wrote me, Oh, did he, did it, was it on Twitter? I always forget where people write me because, you know, like some people want to write you on Twitter here. Okay. Here he is. How do I pronounce his first name? J-O-C-H-E-N is how it's spelled. Jochen. Jochen. He's really, he's getting a lot of shout outs in all of these shows. He's great. He's He's the leader of the whole thing. Okay. So here's what he says. Listen to what he says. Hi, Dan. Mm. I just wanted to do my duty and answer your question on this week's road work about whether or not John had said he went to bed at 2 a.m. or at 4 a.m. My notes for episode 236 back in October of 2021 read as following, quote, John is trying to think of how he is going to ever go into retirement. He hasn't any way to do it. He turned 53 a couple weeks ago, and if that is halfway through his life, he will live to be 106, and he has some doubts about that. He is not going to get to 106 if he's sleeping four hours a night. He slept eight hours last night because of three things. He was so exhausted from sleeping only four and a half hours of sleep the prior three nights that he was able to go to sleep at 2 a.m. instead of 4 a.m. And then he slept in three chunks from 2 to 8. He woke up, looked at the clock and said, I don't have to get up yet. He rolled back over and slept till 10, rolled back over, reset the alarm for 10.50, and the show starts at 11. And this is back to his notes. He says, my interpretation is that he did go to bed at 2 a.m. like you remembered, but it was an exception from his usual 4 a.m. So both of you are right? Question mark. Hmm. So I told him thank you, and I hearted his message. And so yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I think he does want to get questioned. He does want questions. And if <laughs> anything, I think people like him, mm-hmm. who are who are experts, and he is yeah. an expert, I would think that he would appreciate 
the recognition of his expertise and an ability for him, apparently what is trivial for him to call up data, I would think he would want to exercise that ability. I know that I would. Mm -hmm. Well, but I think, I think my experience is that he has embarked upon the project of listening to these shows for very personal reasons. And he is not, I mean, although he makes his knowledge available to everyone generously, Mm. um, because it's, you know, it's a practical application of his project. The actual project itself and his pursuit of it is something that he is doing for his for his own reasons, not for not exclusively for public benefit, but mm. for for reasons of his own. And so, although he accepts his responsibility, and I mm. think a lot of people, it's a bur- it's a burden. Well, he heavy he, is the head. What wears the crown? Is that what you're yeah, trying to say? I think a lot of people now contact him and expect him to have ready answers. Well, and I don't care about those people. I care about well, you and me. This is but, this is the show. This is the show. He's happy to do it, but at the same time, you know, he's he is pursuing his own course in life, and so I I would never say. I definitely have talked to talked to him and said, "Hey, will you tell me this? Will you tell me that?" You know, Captain Marm has an, also an incredible re, recall, and I've asked her many times, what was, did I ever, is there something, you know, and they usually are able to tell me, uh, but at the same time, I would never say, like, I would never give them a task. Mm. No, I'm oh, always very... Submitting a request. What if we submit, Okay, like submitting a request. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, I, I agree. But so eventually, being frustrated by Peter, I went to John Kazanjan myself and said, what about the other garage? It's on the opposite side of the parking lot. It's way over there. It's fully three, no, 200 feet, um, which I think is what, 70 meters for our, for our metric friends. Uh, from the other garage. Peter's garage is down in the hole. Mine would be up on the street. It'd be right. And so he was like, fine, turn it into a practice space. And we built a cinder block wall. We took the garage door off of there and ruined it as a garage forever. Put a cinder block wall with a window and a door. Built an inner wall to insulate it from sound and turned it into our band practice space. And it remained, it was a, when I left on my walk across Europe, I handed it off to the next band. Um, and it, be, it was a band practice space all the way until the new, the Richard Hugo house tore everything down and built a whole new arts complex there a few years ago. But now real estate on Capitol Hill is more expensive than Manhattan. It's so crazy to think that that was only... 20 years ago that I was still paying $350 a month for that place. Mm. And now $350 a month won't get you a bottle of water up there. Right. It's so crazy. But so Scott and I were dropped off in the back parking lot some late night. My practice space was right there. I think Scott's car was parked there. We'd been at some event. I don't remember what. And we... We're standing there in the parking lot kind of saying our goodbyes, like, see you later. And we hear from the stairwell behind the New City Theater down next to the casket elevator. We hear this like, huh, 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 sound. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Scott and I are both uh, Generation X uh, urban spelunkers, yeah, explorers, sure. yes. right? And we're, we look at each other and we're like, what's that? Mm. It can only be one of a couple of things. And if it's two people weird humping down in that like awful water-filled I mean, stairwell. Yeah, all, all humping is kind of weird. <laughs> we definitely want to see it, you know? Of course. Like what's going on? This is, you know, this is my turf basically. And so, and and all through the 90s, I was very much like Capitol, Capitol Hill is my turf, 
And so when things would go, you know, like some way I didn't approve of, I was always up there being the sheriff. You know, there was a, there was a, an aid car ambulance that used to pull up in front of the newsstand where I worked and they would leave it running while they went in to get a coffee Mm -hmm. because ambulances and cops just leave their cars running. Why not? No one's going to take it. And they did it a couple of times. And the third time they pulled up up there out there and, and got out, I got, I went, I said to my, whoever was at the cash register, I was like, will you hold on just a second? I walked around out the door, stopped him on the sidewalk. And I was like, Hey, don't leave your ambulance running out in front of my store. Fills the store up with gas fumes. Right. And, you know, like EMT aid guys, these aren't EMTs either. These are medics. Hmm. Medics aren't used to being told no. anything. Uh-uh. You know, these guys are kind of top of the food chain. And they were like, what? And I was like, don't leave your ambulance running out in front of my store on a hot summer day. And they like smirked. And then we stood there and looked at each other. Uh-huh. And then one of them went back and turned the ambulance off. And they were parked in the bus zone. Says but I didn't a care. Crime. I didn't care about that. Criminal. They can park in the bus zone. That's between them and the city. Don't leave your ambulance running out front. So I was like that already about everything. If somebody was out there with a barking dog, I'd go out like, hey, don't let your dog bark in front of on on the corner of Broadway and John. It's not acceptable. No. These days, you know, you could take a shit on the sidewalk out there and people would <laughs> applaud. <laughs> yeah but, it'd be performance art yeah it used to well no it would be you know it'd be like symbolic of your of capitalist oppression or something but ah. at the time there were there were still standards even in the grunge years you know but so scott and i kind of tiptoe over to this very dark very gross like concrete outdoor steps down to the embalming room and we peer over the edge and there's a guy lying on the on the concrete steps and another guy pumping his heart. Oh. And the huh 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 is his breath. Ugh. As the other guy's trying to put air in his lungs. I don't like that. I would have rather it been ugly sex. Well, sure, we were we felt the same way and we were like, so then, you know, Scott and I look at each other and it's like, well, do we get involved? And of course we do. Of course you get involved. So we're like, hey, buddy. And the guy looks up all scared. And we're like, what's going on? You know, do you need a hand? And he's like, oh, no, it's cool. And the guy that he's pumping, when he stops, like, giving him this, the compression, he's kind of breathing. He's like. Coming out of it. Raspy. No, he's not coming out of it. He's barely breathing is what that. and And you hear that phrase, like, barely breathing. Yeah. But when you see someone who's barely breathing, it really is a thing. Like he's still alive and he's still trying, but he's not making it. And we're like, looks like your buddy's in trouble. And he was like, oh, well, you know, it's it's cool. Don't worry. And we were like, seriously, though, your friend there seems like he's kind of dying. Mm-hmm. And so we come down the stairs. So now we're all down in this because the other, you know. The other guy is like this junkie and he's scared and he's high. And so, you know, not exactly a threat, right? It's a, it's a bad, it's a weird, bad scene, but it's like, uh, not, it's not scary except in the sense that this guy is dying. And so we get down there and we're looking at him and the guy's like, yeah, well, you know, he might be, he might be in trouble. or or whatever (laughs) right and so we're like well we got to call the ambulance and he's like oh i don't know you know i wouldn't want to like don't overreact and we're like seriously he needs an ambulance and there was a phone booth right there right on the corner and so i I think it was me. It might have been Scott. One of us went up and, you know, put a quarter in the phone and called 911. 
it was me because I had the conversation with the operator. I was like, we're in the stairwell behind the new city theater. A guy's ODing. And the operator was like, he's ODing. Oh, okay. Well, a, a car is on the way. And so we waited and we're, and he still, I think Scott was like, took over kind of taking care of the guy. Put, put, you know, pumping, and I don't know, Scott might have even given him mouth-to-mouth. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. It was a long time ago now. Yeah. And we hear the siren, and the siren's driving around. They can't find the place. We hear him over there, then we hear him over there, then we hear him over there. It's like, honestly, New City Theater, it should be, you should know where it is. Finally, they show up. And as the, as, oh, as we hear the siren, the other junkie dude is like, looks like you guys got this in con- under control. Hope you don't mind if I split because I really don't want to interact with any cops if that's cool. Uh-huh. And we were like, yeah, man, you know, like we get it. Like, vaya con Dios. Mm-hmm. And so he splits. So now we're in charge of this guy. And he was like, he he would take a little raspy breath and then no breath for what seemed like a long time. Mm. And then he would manage to eke out another raspy breath. It was super touch and go. Yeah, well, so, the, so this ambulance pulls in, the guys get out, they come down the stairs and they're, you know, one of the guys is pretty big. The, the guy, the guy that's dying is also kind of big the two get down there and they're like well we got to get him out of this stairwell so we all heft him up carry him up to the parking lot and the two uh aid car guys are like oh this guy's really dying right we can't deal with this we're just aid car guys because 911 when they hear like junkie on Capitol Hill during this era, they're like, you know, they're pulling dead junkies out of bathrooms all over the, all over the hill all the time. They just sent an aid car. And so the aid car guys are like, whoa, this is way above our pay grade. We need to call a medic. And so they get on their horn and they're like, you need to send a medic. And it made us mad because it's like, we said he was, he was a junkie and he was dying and he was still alive. Why wouldn't you send the medic? And they, so they send this like exploratory aid car, basically either to give somebody a band aid or, or, uh, or transport the body, you know? Well, then we hear the medic siren and the medics get there in three minutes. Like they are professional firefighters and they're just complete. They get out and they're, joking with each other totally cavalier they look at the guy they're like oh yeah this guy's really fucked up they pick him up throw him in the uh throw him in the back of their ambulance rip his shirt or whatever and me they're not talking they're just talking to each other like they're not talking to us they're not this does not bother them at all they're like blah 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 did you see the game this type of thing and they whack this guy with a shot and he like there's a there's two beats like 1001 1002 and he goes <gasps> and just like in the up. movies just like just like on <laughs> yeah. tv like that it's crazy sits up breathing eyes open and the first thing he says is like it's cool it's cool it's cool and the medic's laughing and he's like it is not cool my friend <laughs> And so they, <laughs> and I think they, what did they do? I, they strapped him and intubated him, I think. And I was like, is he going to be okay? And they were like, mm, no, nah, there's no guarantee. Like that, that, that woke him up, but that's, it's not to say that he's, he won't still die. Wow. And they shut the doors and off they went. And, and then, you know, the, the other aid car was gone. Everybody was gone, and all of a sudden, Scott and I were standing in this dark parking lot all by ourselves. Like, huh, well, well, that was, uh, yeah, well, anyway, see you later. (laughs) 
Okay. And it, is that stuff something that like um like a regular person could could buy? Because I feel like you would no, want to keep that so. around, you know, as a just in case kind of thing. I don't think you can just get Narcan, but may, maybe. Yeah, I feel maybe. like you'd want to have, you know, like people who are allergic to like uh, a beast thing, have the EpiPen, they just keep it in their, you know, in their backpack or in their car or something. I feel like if you're a heavy IV drug user or something, you just keep that with you, you know? And like, yeah. And say I to your guess. buds, you know, this is just so you know, it's in my, uh, in my, my pocket over here in case something goes down, you know, stab me with that. I guess it is a, I guess it is a prescription drug that you could conceivably get, although that'd be a yeah. hilarious conversation <laughs> hey, Doc, with I your doctor. Some Narcan, please. Whoa, this says there's a nasal spray. Really? Whoa. Okay, so it is a thing. You just get a prescription for it. You carry nasal spray around with you like an inhaler. And when you OD, <laughs> you just spray it in your nose. Wow, it's so much easier to be a junkie now than it used to be. Okay, so here's here's what it says. There's a there's a fact about this, and it, I guess the official name of it is naloxone, N A L O X O N E, naloxone or Narcan. <clears throat> naloxone. I'm saying it wrong. I'm sure reverses an opioid overdose. It works by blocking the effects of opiates on the brain and by restoring breathing. It will only work if a person has opiates in their system. It will not work with other drugs. A person cannot get high from using it, and it is safe for practically anyone to use. Huh. If the person does not wake up in three minutes, bystanders should give a second dose. Oh. Oh, wait, there are three different ways. Intramuscular, where it's injected through clothing into the muscle. Okay. Intranasal, in which it's sprayed into the nose and then intravenously. Oh. Is prescribing take-home naloxone, naloxone recommended? It's widely endorsed policy. Uh-huh. The American Medical Association, the American Public Health Association, both have supported the availability of take-home naloxone. So there you go. Well, uh, oh, it says the huh. person can stop breathing again unless you get more once it's worn off. So that's that's probably why he was. They were saying to you that. He's not necessarily okay. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, right? The drug is still in the system. Right. Narcan just like blocks it for a little bit. For a but period it's still of there. time, 30 to 90 minutes, according to this. Yeah. Uh, I, it used to be uh, on Capitol Hill that a lot of people OD'd, and it tended to be in public bathrooms or you know, in stairwells behind businesses. I know I have two firsthand experiences of people dying in bathrooms of cafes where I was a regular. Mm. And that is why bathrooms started to have locks. In 1991, you could walk in anywhere and say, can I use the bathroom? Or you just walk in and use the bathroom. And the whole business of like a key to the bathroom that's tied to a big brick that you have to ask behind the counter, that whole universe came about as a result of people using bathrooms to shoot up. And then, you know, using a bathroom to shoot up didn't bother anybody. It was then you were in there for an hour and people are out there pounding on the door Mm -hmm. and you finally have to kick the door down and then, you know, you find somebody in there that's OD'd. And it was like, we're going to put a lock on it. <laughs> I remember the first I remember the first day I walked in <laughs> to the Espresso Roma and went back to the bathroom. I was like, and the girl behind the counter was like, oh, there's a key now. I was like, oh, man. And I knew why. Yeah. But it was like, that was, those were early days when the stakes were really low about how things sucked now. Mm-hmm. Like these mm-hmm. days, we, everybody says it all the time. Everything sucks now. And I guess I don't remember saying everything sucks now, except maybe the first time was like the, when I had to get a key for the bathroom. And I was like, oh, that's the end of the good old days. <laughs> Little did I know. Little did you know. Little did I know. You never, ever would have thought it would have been very hard to predict 
1994, looking around Seattle's Capitol Hill at that time, and this was true of Los Angeles and San Francisco and Austin and everywhere, it would have been incredibly hard to predict that real estate that was not like beachfront Santa Barbara, it was just regular dumpy little bungalows and warehouses that that would be not just expensive, but like ridiculously expensive to the point that nobody could afford them. Like there are bungalows on Capitol Hill, two bedroom, 1400 square foot bungalows that haven't even, there's nothing special about them. They're 10 feet from their neighbors on either side. They're like a million dollars. And these were bungalows that were just like shitbox, punk rock squats. And every third one of them had some band practicing in the basement. People were splitting the rent up in, in ways where, you know, you could have a room for $150. And now... I don't get it, you know, and it's true everywhere, right? That's true in Austin. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw a house in LA that was $250,000 and I was like, since when? This isn't some mansion up in Laurel Canyon. This is just some some box on the flats. Yeah, $250,000. And I was like, the end. And, you know, of course, you look back at it like you look back at Bitcoin and go, I could have bought five houses. Yeah, right. For no, you can't, you 40000 each. You can't do that. You'll just, no, you can't. You'll spend your whole life regretting everything you've ever done. Yeah, you, you can't, can't do live that. like that. It's no good you can't. for your soul. Yeah, it just absolutely hurts. Absolutely right. It, it, just hurts. it hurts. You don't want to live like that. And if it's not meet, true, even. No, it's not true. And if you meet, if you meet someone, who claims to, oh, I don't really have any regrets. There's two, there's two answers for that. Either one, they haven't done a goddamn thing in their life. Or two, they're completely unaware of all the mistakes that they've made. And they're, they simply can't feel the regret. Because, or they're, three, they don't feel regret because they're a sociopath or something. Yeah. Those are the three answers. Everyone has regrets. And you can't sit there and like, well, if I'd done this, like, yeah, we'd all be millionaires if we had done something different. Sure. My dad could have killed Hitler. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it's possible. Sure. He could have, he could have 18 years old, flown to Germany. Yeah. Got a, got, you know, went to a parade somehow, managed to make his way to the front. I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it, it doesn't pay to have regrets. Oh, wow. On that topic. Last night, I was laying in bed. Every once in a while, bad thoughts will creep in. Yeah. I was laying in bed, and I started to have bad thoughts creep in. Mm -mm. In particular, in 1993, I was working at a pizza parlor, and everybody at the pizza parlor was... Same age as me, 21 to 24. Mm -hmm. And we were all punk rock scroungers and drug addicts. And, but you know, in that, in the way that was very, um, normal. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I got hired to basically be one of the floaters. Basically everybody at this pizza parlor was a floater. You'd work the pizza serving station and then you would work the cash register. And then, you, you know, one day a week, everybody had to do the dishes, but there was a grade above. And those were the pizza tossers. And every, every shift there would be two pizza tossers and they got paid more and they had seniority and that that was a job where they didn't have to do the dishes once a week. Mm -hmm. And one of the pizza tossers was this girl who was a drummer in a punk band 
and she had short black hair and was small and had grown up, you know, white trash in a small Washington rural town. And I'd been working there a while and I'd been, you know, kind of oblivious to my coworkers. I used to sit at the cash register and, and pour wine into a Coke, uh, you know, whatever, a Coca-Cola glass and sit and drink it while I worked. Mm -hmm. It was just whatever. It was a whatever job. Oh, and the, the girl that was a pizza tosser, drummer in a punk rock band was also a lesbian and was in a long-term committed relationship with a drummer of a famous band. And there was one summer we were working together at the pizza kiosk that we set up temporarily at a festival at the Seattle center called bite of Seattle. And we were working, it was a hot day, and we're just slinging pizza. You know, it was a huge moneymaker because there's crowds and crowds of people. Right. And I noticed her. And I'd always noticed her, but, like, I really saw her. And we were working and cracking jokes and working next to each other. And, like, we saw each other. And at the end of the day... I don't exactly remember what happened, but but she said, we should hang out. And I was like, what about tomorrow? And she laughed and she was like, okay, cool. And so the next day, I didn't have a car. She picked me up and we went on this tour of all the dive bars of Seattle. We went to, you know, everyone that was, everyone that had a piano bar where some, you know, like 70-year-old gay guy would play any song you would name and all the patrons of the bar were 70-year-old women who were singing show tunes and every once in a while, you know, some hipster would get up and say, you know, play Down by the River or whatever, and he would know it. And they would sing it, and it became, you know, it was like dive bar culture. And we went to all of them. We went to the Twin Teepees, which was a bar that looked like two teepees, except made out of concrete. All of these things are torn down now. And at the end of the night, we ended up in Volunteer Park in the dark, sitting sitting on the grass next to each other by the kiddie pool, and we started kissing. And we were making out in the park. And this was the park. This was like the hookup park, the gay hookup park Mm. where all the bushes were full of people and you'd walk around the park in the night and people would like step out of the bushes and their faces (laughs) would be in shadow. And there was all this action going on in the park. It was like legendary. So we're in this park and we're kissing and there, this guy comes walking across the uh, park punk rock guy. And he uh, says the girl's name He's like, is that you? And we sit up, and she's like, oh, hey, man. And he's like, hey. He's a friend. He knows her story. He knows she's she lives with and is in a long-term relationship with this woman. And so th- he's like, okay, cool. Well, I'll see you around. And she's like, okay, bye. So then we're sitting there. It's pretty awkward. Hmm. She's like, well, we should go. She drops me off. But I said, can we go out tomorrow? And she said, yes. Hmm. Well, the next day was my cousin's wedding. And it was, my, it was my rich cousin from my rich side of the family. And they were having this wedding at a place called The Ruins, which was a abandoned warehouse that had been turned into a very fancy events space in a completely unlikely location. And so she picks me up. Oh, so I tell her, dress nice. So she picks me up. She's in a dress, you know, like a knee-length vintage thrift store dress. And she's got a little choker necklace with a turtle on it. 
She's like, where are we going? And I was like, to my cousin's wedding. <laughs> and we went to the wedding and she couldn't believe it, you know, cause it's gaudy. There was like a life size elephant, not a live one, like an elephant kind of decorated as though it was in a room that was supposed to be like the Maharaja's palace. And then the next room was supposed to be Sherlock Holmes's library. You know, it's one of these places grand piano candelabra and she's just laughing because she's never been to a thing like this she didn't know no one would know it was there unless you went there and i'm at that stage of my life where i'm totally mocking my rich relatives kind of like now except then i was doing it in a very young kind of punk way like look at these scumbags these are my people and we're having a great time. Everybody likes her. They have no idea that we're laughing at them. Or if they do, they think it's funny. And we go behind a curtain at some point and we start making out again. <laughs> and it's really intense. And I am like completely in love with her. Like I just went across a line <laughs> to utterly in love with her. And I was young and I was so dumb and so inexperienced that once I was in love, I, I lost all sense. As you do. And because of the intensity of this two days, I could only conclude that she was in love with me and that we were together now and not only were we together but that this was the passionate relationship of our young lives and we're just we're making out behind this curtain it's right by the bar um nobody can see us but like the bartender you know peeks back there and is like oh my you know because we're like serious and the problem is this is the uncle that owns the winery mm. and there's so much wine and it's all his label. And I, you know, went to the bartender at one point and I was like, just give me one of those bottles. And so I have a bottle of wine and I'm drinking it. And then I'm like, give me another one of those bottles. And so in the course of sitting behind this curtain and making out with this girl, I, she and I both, you know, are just drinking so much wine and I start to get woozy and she starts to get woozy. And at some point she's like, I have to go to the bathroom and she goes to the bathroom and she doesn't come back. Oh no. And at a, you know, after a while I go over to near the bathroom and I'm kind of standing there next to the women's room and I hear crying. Mm. Now I have no idea whether it was her or somebody else. And she was still in there cause she was comforting somebody. I don't know. Cause I didn't ask her when she finally came out, like the mood had changed and we got, we left the party. We got in her car. We were super drunk. She drove me back to my house and, and then she spent the night with me, but we were too drunk to do anything. And in the morning I woke up to the sound of the front door closing and her having gotten up and left. And I, and I felt like a cold disturbance in the force because that was not the move that she would have made. That was not the move I was expecting her to make. I thought we were going to wake up in the morning and go get pancakes and start talking about the rest of our lives. Well, the bad thing was later that day, I was in the U District for some reason, and I bumped into Holden Payne. And Holden Payne was the lead singer in a punk rock band. And a guy I knew from Alaska. And Holden Payne was in the social circle of the punk rock band's that this girl was part of that circle. 
And he was like, hey, John Roderick, what's going on, man? I was like, oh, hey, Holden. Oh, you know, just kicking it. We stopped to talk. He's like, yeah, man, well, what's the, you know, what's the story? And I'm like, well, you know, just been hanging out, hanging out with this girl, actually. Because I'm thinking, this is all going to come out eventually. Or I don't know what I was thinking. I was bragging, maybe. And Holden goes, what? And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, well, whatever, you know, I bounce off of the topic. <laughs> and Holden's like, oh, inter you know, like, interesting. And I was like, no, it's not interesting. Don't, you know, just forget I said it or whatever. Well, the next day I'm at work, and she comes in, and she's like, can I talk to you for a second? And we go sit at a table in the pizza restaurant, which is already very unusual. And she's like, did you say something to Holden Payne? And I was like, oh, man. Yeah, by accident. And she's like, he is the worst gossip. And he told his girlfriend. And his girlfriend told this, that, and the other. And it got back to my girlfriend, who just got back from tour last night, which is why I left in the morning, because she was getting back from tour. And now it's a, a massive scandal. And I was like, oh, no. And at that point, our relationship was over. Mm. And, but I was, I was gone. I was cooked. Like, I was in love with her. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that our relationship was over. It's impossible. Yeah. I was already, because I had not had a relationship yet. I had a high school girlfriend. I had some girls in college that were like my girlfriend slash trouble, trouble friend, mm -hmm. including one girl who went to Whitworth College whose actual nickname was Trouble. She said her grandmother had started calling her trouble when she was three years old. And that's what everybody called her. And I was like, I'm dating a girl named trouble. That is very appropriate to this time in, in, pl in place. So this was this girl from the pizza parlor was going to be my first ever real downtown girlfriend. And she was a drummer and she was so beautiful and she didn't care about anything and either did I and she was funny and then it was over and I couldn't tell whether it was over because I had talked to Holden Payne or whether it was over because it was always just a weekend for her and she was going back to her girlfriend or what I was just too unsophisticated I did not play it cool I did not do I drank too much. I didn't do any of the things correctly, but then we worked together and I couldn't get her out of my head and I couldn't believe that she didn't want to find a path for us. And I was a drunk and I got drunk over this a thousand times. And eventually she asked the manager to switch her shifts around so she wasn't working when I was working. It was awful. And it and it never left me. After I got sober for a decade. And the, and she ended up marrying a guy and they, you know, were kind of had a successful record label. She was in a band that got that was if not popular, very influential. You know, they weren't big, but they were influential. She's still around, although I've only run into her once or twice in the 25 years since then. But I never forgot it, and I never forgave myself. And it just broke my heart because, it, because I had this tantalizing moment where I thought everything was going to change for me. I was going to stop being a lonely heart loser, 
I was going to have the things that you have a a girlfriend that you're really into and she's doing cool things and and then you can do cool things and and you guys are, you know, a thing. Holden Payne's got a freaking girlfriend. 